Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Thanks for joining me. This week features the first cinematographer to appear on The Blank Canvas. Mandy Walker was born and raised in Melbourne, Australia. She started out as a clapper loader, which is the person that loads film, back in the film days anyway, and she worked her way up through the camera department on documentaries, feature films, commercials, music videos, and she shot a first feature film, Return Home, at the age of 25. Mandy has since notched up 20 feature film credits as director of photography and has filmed over 100 high-end international commercials, including commercial films for Chanel No. 5, which were directed by Baz Luhrmann and feature Nicole Kidman, and more recently with supermodel Giselle. But clearly the pinnacle of Mandy's career was shooting a commercial I directed back in the 90s for Ampol, starring Molly Meldrum. (laughs) Had to go there. Mandy is a sitting governor of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in the American Society of Cinematographers. She was inducted into the Hall of Fame of the Australian Cinematographers Society as well. She was the Kodak Artist-in-Residence at UCLA Film School and in 2015 received the Kodak Cinematography Mentor of the Year Award. There's no doubt that Mandy is an extremely talented cinematographer, but I think what makes her so sought after by the top directors on the planet is that she's just an absolute joy to collaborate with. She's worked across a broad array of genres in everything from small character-based art films to the $200 million Disney epic Mulan. Other credits include the deeply moving Academy Award-nominated Hidden Figures, The Mountain Between Us starring Kate Winslet and Idris Elba, Truth starring Kate Blanchett and Robert Redford, Red Riding Hood with Amanda Seyfried and Gary Oldman, Jane Got a Gun with Natalie Portman, the Aussie classic Lantana, Baz Luhrmann's movie Australia and Mandy is currently shooting the untitled Elvis Presley project for Baz once again which stars Tom Hanks. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the blank canvas Mandy Walker. Good morning, Mandy. Hi, Lee. (laughs) I won't ask how you are this morning because you've had an interesting, well, afternoon there in LA. So we're going to bypass that and I'll make this part of your day (laughs) as painless as possible. (laughs) Good. This will be the nice part of my day. Good. I hope so. Hey, I've been watching a lot of your films of late and... It's pretty extraordinary, the body of work you've got together there since we worked together a couple of decades ago. Um, Did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams when you were, you know, loading film back in the day as a clapper loader that you'd be cinematographer for a $200 million US epic film? Um, Well, you know what? I sort of thought I would. I don't know. I I had high hopes for myself. I... Because when I started as a loader, I always wanted to be a cinematographer. You know, I know sometimes people start off in the film industry and not know quite where they're going, but 
for me, I very early on knew where I was going. And so, yeah, it was. That was in my sights. Wow. Well, that's very cool. Talk about thinking big. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just always thought, always thought, you know, I can do that. And I didn't see any reason why I couldn't. So I just kept going until I was doing the things that I really wanted to do. Wow. That's very cool. So, you know, what sort of kid were you at school and how did you arrive at this dream of being a cinematographer? How was that even real for you? Well, I went to like a normal sort of daggy primary school and high school out in Bandura, but I was always interested in photography and film and art. And it's because my mother was an artist and she also took me to the cinema from a really early age and we traveled through Europe and, um, you know, I was in a little pram stroller being taken around to all the galleries in London and Paris and uh, I'm sure that had some kind of an influence on me. So when I was in high school, I was very interested in photography and I did go and see um, a lot of sort of foreign language films as well, you know, when I was in high school and sort of broadened my horizons there. But I, because I loved photography and, and I love film, I thought that that was a natural kind of place for me to be, is to be shooting movies. And I really love the storytelling aspect of my job, you know, whereas stills photography I felt was not as broad, you know, and not, not as exciting an idea for me as to be working with a director telling a story with actors, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And how did you, like you left school, did you do high school, did you go to college or you did did you just crack a job in the business and work your way up? Um, I started at university at La Trobe doing a humanities art course and then at the end of the first term I was doing a, um, a cinema studies, which was an academic course at the Council of Adult Education and our teacher was John Flouse, who's an actor and a film critic. And after class one day, I said to him, I really want to get into the film industry and and sort of explained my pan to him. And he gave me a phone number of a guy called Kent Chadwick in Victoria who was working on a feature film. And I called him up and said, is there any jobs on the movie? And um, sure enough, I got a job as a runner and I left university then, and then I never went back because after that I spoke to, you know, the people who were in the camera department on that film saying, this is what I really want to do, and I'd hang out and ask questions, and then through that, by the end of the movie, I had a couple of contacts through them that I rang and got a job working for nothing on a couple of documentaries, and then I got a clapper-loading job. So I sort of spent my first two or three years being sort of very poor but managing to get a lot of information and education by working on other people's projects. And and then I worked my way up in the camera department. So for me, it was always a means to an end. I mean, I loved uh, because I actually I did apply to film school, AFTRS, when I was in high school and I didn't get in when I was 17. But the way I did it, I'm glad I did it this way because I got to work with film crews and see how the dynamics work on set and, you know, what everybody's job was and also to work with varied cinematographers and directors and to see what their relationship was because that's the most important relationship for me on a film is that with the director. 
and then, you know, I started shooting my own little films and doing some student films with people and that I knew, you know, friends and sort of taught myself on the job basically as I was assisting other people. Wow, that's awesome. Hey, um, it was a pretty male-dominated business back then in the camera department. The cameras, the gear, everything was very heavy. So it tended to be the stronger blokes that gravitated to the camera department and women gravitated to, you know, production managers, production, hair, makeup, styling, wardrobe, you know, blah, blah, blah. So how did you go, I guess, both with the physicality of that and, you know, working with the blokes? Um. I've always felt like, well, first of all, I'm a pretty strong person physically and mentally I must be because um, there was a lot of pushback and the guys really tested me out. Instead of me just carrying two boxes, I had to carry the 10 boxes and I am strong. I'm physically strong. So that was a really good thing. Yeah, When I first came into the industry, I had no idea that there weren't women doing my job because I knew of female stills photographers, you know, and I thought that, of course, there'd be cinematographers that were women, and there wasn't. And um, a lot of it is traditional and unconscious bias that, you know, there'd always been men and people assume that women couldn't stand all day with a camera on their shoulder. And um, But I just got in there and I just did it. And I didn't make a big deal about it. I just did my job. And I wasn't aggressive about it and I wasn't pushy. I was a quiet achiever and just sort of <laughs> would make sure people would see that I could do it, you know. And I have to say, though, it hasn't changed a lot. Like there is still only 5% of cinematographers in the world are women, but there's becoming a lot more women working their way up. And I've always made an effort myself to try and get other women interested in doing what I do and, and teaching and, you know, um, having mentees and just speaking to students and, and saying, hey, you know, my job's a real possibility for you. Why don't you look at it as an option, you know? And now, you know, I realise that there's not many diverse people in the camera department either around the world, you know, like especially in the United States and Australia. So I make an effort to sort of try and hire people that are from different backgrounds, different cultures, people of colour, to encourage them to come into it as well. So... You know, I just want it to be a position where you never have to think about that again, you know, and, and that nobody questions the fact that there's a woman on set or there's people of different nationalities or backgrounds that can bring something else to the project because it's still very much an old white guy job. Yep, you're absolutely right. You were the first woman DP I worked with and you had a great attitude, gentle yet very strong Funnily enough, that we only did one job together. It was an Ampol commercial with Molly Meldrum um, talking to camera. And funnily I enough, remember. yeah, funnily enough, it was a, um, a handheld job. So clearly, I didn't think, well, I can't get Mandy because it's handheld all day and the camera's heavy. I was like, well, you know, she's the right person for the job. And um, it was actually a pretty funny spot. And that went well. I'm not sure why we didn't work together again. I think you've probably been too busy. I did try for a few times. I think you've been off on your grand trajectory. <laughs> I think also I left Australia soon after that because I've been out here in Los Angeles for 18 years now. So it probably wasn't long after that that um, I made the move. I've gone back quite a few times 
and I was just back there for a long time. But, um, you know, if something comes up that's at home, I always make an effort to do that because I love working in Australia. But, yeah, I think I pretty much left after that. Not because of you, but I did leave. <laughs> oh, I remember it being pretty funny with Molly. Molly had just got off the plane from LA from having done some interview with Madonna. <laughs> it's this... It was Molly recounting the the celebrity music stories from his recent trip. It was like um, the the best comedy was definitely off screen. Oh, I remember that, and and everybody was just enthralled by what he had to say because he was such an icon. I think I was even a little bit scared to be shooting him because he is such a big public figure. Yeah, no, it was pretty funny. Yeah, it's interesting what you were saying about. I'd like to validate your approach because. Though you were a woman and that wasn't that common, really you just had very little attention on it. You just did what you did. You got on with everyone. You were very positive and it just was, it was just a very natural thing. So, yeah, I think that's really inspiring for others and there's a lot to take from that. Don't put your attention on that. Just communicate well with people, bring the team together, lead them well, be a professional, and then that other stuff just drops away. That's right. And I think, you know, like I was saying to you, I learnt from working with other cinematographers and very varied ones that worked in very different ways. And some of them were mean and some of them were sort of, you know, spend half the day yelling at their crew and then others were kind and generous and supportive and collaborative. And it sort of taught me how, what kind of cinematographer do I want to be? And I wanted to be the one that was collaborative and communicative and kind and, you know, gave people a chance to contribute as well, which I think is really important. And I always try and do that with my crew is um, make them part of the process instead of saying, well, I'm the boss and this is how we're going to do things. You know, now in the last few films, I bring in my camera operators and my camera assistants and the gaffers and the grips really early on in pre-production and talk about the visual language that I'm having with the director. Whereas in the past, you know, whenever I turned up on a job, a lot of people didn't even read the script that were on the crew and they would just turn up and be told what to do. And I like people to feel included in the project and I found that really well, you know, and and I say, you know, feel free to offer stuff up. You've got to pick the right moment and, you know, if you have an idea... You can tell me I may say no, but sometimes I'll say yes, but I want you to be, you know, that much involved in what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds like a great approach. Things have definitely changed a lot over the years. I remember the, you know, dictatorial DPs and directors back then from when I got into the business. It was it was wild. One of the first jobs I was on as talent was actually a Coke commercial and there, the DP turned up in this um, BMW and got out with a knee-length fur coat on and sunnies <laughs> and it was just like the full rock star got out and then he had his megaphone and he was just you know telling the gaffer on the megaphone you know pointing uh, over here it was an absolute show in itself and then funnily enough he quickly came unstuck because there was stunts on the job and everything I won't go into too many details but they didn't set up the stunt correctly and like on the first take there were these cyclists on the road and the cyclists just came across this finishing line full bore and the tracking vehicle came to a stop and they all just launched straight into the back of the camera vehicle oh. and flew over the camera vehicle, these cyclists. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, oh, my God. Oh, no. A little less attention on what you're wearing that day and how you're treating everyone and a bit more on the detail. 
I know. I I can't believe some of the things that I did too when I first started. Like I remember hanging off the back of a ute with someone just you know hanging off the back tray about six inches off the road as we were driving along shooting and and just that whole thing. It's changed a lot, thankfully. That safety has become you know paramount, especially with stunts. But I'm sure that you know I've got nine lives and I got away with eight of them during that time. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, by the same token, there were a few wild ones, but there have been a lot of lot of great men and a lot of great directors that I guess supported and mentored you early on. In particular, Paul Goldman was a, a, a great director that you worked a lot with, wasn't he? Yes. Um, he and I started working together in music videos really early on in my career and um, he had already been to film school and um, he had been making a lot of music videos, little short student films. And then I started working on music videos with him and then commercial. So we kind of went into that industry at the same time together. And um, so that relationship was already quite strong and he was doing quite innovative things at that time, you know, with the crossover between doing music videos into commercials. I think he became really super busy because of that. And then we went on to do a film together. We did Australian Rules, which was his first feature film. It's a great film. Um, Yeah, it is a great film. I'm very proud of that movie and I think he did an amazing job. And it was a really, you know, it was a nice job to do together. It was himself and me and Stephen Jones Evans, the production designer, and the three of us had been working together for a really long time. And uh, it was our first time together doing a drama and it was just a really good experience. I really enjoyed it a lot. And it wasn't a big budget or anything and we were in Adelaide and we didn't have a lot of gear or time, but I I thought we all pulled together and made a really beautiful movie. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about some of the music videos. I I think you did some of my wife's videos, didn't you? I did. (laughs) I did a couple with Kate um, and Paul. And also someone else was directing. I think maybe even Craig Griffin, Paul's producer, directed one of them. Was that Everything's All Right for Jesus Christ Superstar that you did with Craig? I think it might have been. I cannot remember. But I also remember with, doing... With John Farnham, Jod Stevens, that one? Yeah, that one. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I did do that. I'm not sure if Craig did that, but maybe he did. I can't look. I cannot remember. It was over 20 years ago. But I also do remember doing some beautiful black and white uh, music videos with Kate that taught me a lot, actually, at the time because we were shooting on film with black and white negative that you can barely see anymore, let alone shoot on film. But um, that was a really great experience and because it's a different approach to my job and photographically it's it's quite difficult to go from shooting colour into black and white because you're only working with grey tones and the way that the film reacts is different than colour negative and because you can't see what you're doing until it comes back from the lab and and uh, we were being quite experimental. That was some of, you know, my favourite times of learning how to shoot. And um, someone was telling me the other day, I think it was Hoyt Van Hoytema went to film school in um, in uh, Hungary, I think it was, and they only shoot black and white film for the first two years and they're not allowed to shoot colour. And so they learnt that discipline and then they learnt how to shoot colour negative. So it was very different experience. And 
you know, I learned a lot from shooting in those days. And now I feel like if anyone threw me a black and white movie, I would say, hey, I've already done that. I know what I'm doing um, because it's not the same. Make, um, makes sense. Now, look, there were a lot of sleepless nights shooting back in the film era. I, you know, began directing through that era and, you know, you really never knew exactly what what you were going to get until the, the neg came back and um, sometimes you were pleasantly surprised and other times you were like, Oh shit. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's kind of milky and weird. Okay, can we go with this and create a look with it? It was exciting but nerve wracking. How did you manage that back then? And did you have any kind of horror results of where you did expose it wrong or you got something wrong? Although, of course, it was the lab, it wasn't you. Um, what did you, <laughs> did you um, tell us some stories? Well, I was lucky because, you know, I was saying that I would muck around with some of my friends on the weekends and make little films and little experimental films and try stuff and make mistakes. But it was never in a situation that was really important. At that time, we were sometimes shooting reversal and putting it in a negative bath and it came out cross-process, came out all crazy colours, but you never sort of knew exactly what it was going to look like till you got it back. But So I had a chance to do that in a place where I wasn't doing a professional commercial, you know. And then I think for me, I did a documentary that Christina Pozan was directing in Vietnam and we went there for five weeks and there was only four of us. There was me, Christina, um, a producer and a sound recordist and I had no camera assistant and we were shooting on film this is in 1990 and I never saw anything and I had, hadn't really shot very much that taught me to to shoot from a sort of more of a how do you say like um you know I didn't work from a very technical level like I had a light meter but a lot of the time the way I did my exposures was from a gut feeling about I need to overexpose a bit more because I'm looking into those caves or it's very misty. So I hold up my light meter, but I know I have to stop down two stops because there's all this atmosphere that I need the film to eat through. Things like that, like a intuitive is the right word. And that taught me a lot because when I got back, I hadn't buggered it up and it was all fine. And now I work like that all the time. So I would be looking through the eyepiece and look by eye and my light meter was more of a guide. So I suppose what I did was just worked out how negative works and how exposures work, you know, by looking at the image. And I think I did things like I, I um, had looked at a book by Ansel Adams, who was a black and white photographer, and he used to use his own system. And that's how I work. And I was working that way, whereas you look at an image and you see where your highlights are and your shadows are and your midtones, and then you work out where the exposure goes to make them all work together. The last time I shot film was on a movie called Hidden Figures, I lit through the eyepiece, like I would light by eye and then just use my light meter as a guide and then I came back to do, I think I did tracks maybe just after or just before that and we were out in the desert and um, same thing, I could guess my exposures and now I hardly ever get to use film but I still work like that in digital is that I look at the image itself, I don't get too technical about, well, I want to you know, have a ratio of two to one where the highlights are this and the shadows are this. I work like I'm doing painting or, you know, I look at the picture and then that's how I work out rather than being super technical about it. Yeah, that makes total sense and, and that's apparent looking at your work. You know, it, it definitely delivers 
an emotional reaction. That's what I think about first. I'm not sitting there, you know, just as an audience member, I'm not sitting there looking at it technically. And so I think both the, you know, the good films are those ones where the director and the DP have that foremost in mind, the story, yes. the emotional reaction. As soon as it starts looking too technical or too much like a storyboard, it takes you out of the film, out of the story, and, you know, it could look like a big TV commercial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's why I think, you know, a lot of my films are different genres and I try to attack different stories because it ch totally changes how I approach the lighting, you know, or the um, image making. This is about storytelling. Like you say, it's not a technical exercise. It's about working with a director and creating emotion, creating an atmosphere, creating a vision of the characters on the screen that tell a story to the audience. And that's how I look at it from the start. So, I, you know, when I read a script, I don't think about how I'm going to shoot it. I think about what the story is. And, you know, because I work with different directors and they work in different ways all the time, you know, with how they want me to be involved or they have a very clear vision of the film and they'll show me something and say, I want it to look like this or, you know, but I always try and make sure that my opinion is always based on story, not trying to show off, if you know what I mean, or not trying to make something more visual that, that takes the audience out of the story. Like sometimes it's important to have a shot that's quite bland and the camera doesn't move because you just want to be looking at the actor's face, you know, and, and so things like that's interpretive thing. And, yeah, as you know, different directors, as you're saying, work in different ways. And so I have to be a bit of a chameleon in that sense and work out pretty early on what my relationship is with them and what they want me to be to them because a lot of them are very different. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you had a similar feeling. I, I, we only worked together once, but when I worked with Andrew Lesney, you know, a bunch of times, there was a similar feeling. It was very light, it was playful, and it was really, even though the pictures were extraordinary, it was always all about the story and so enthusiastic about the best way of telling that story. And I think that's the key for, you know, young aspiring DPs out there. Obviously, you need to know enough technical stuff to get the job done. <laughs> but yes, yes. Don't get too bogged down in it, particularly on the day. No, that's right, because, and I do have that a couple of times I've come across when I'm teaching, is that, um, you know, I'll, I'll say to one of my students, you know, what's your idea about shooting this? And sometimes I'll offer up something because it's a cool shot. And then I'll say, no, no, stop. This shot has to be telling a story. It has to be communicating something. You don't just walk around with a camera making cool shots. And I think that's what a lot of people think my job is, that I just turn up and try and make it look as cool as possible or, you know, copy something that somebody's doing that's fashionable. As you would know, too, in advertising, there's styles and fashion of different styles at different moments that everyone all of a sudden wants everything to look handheld and available natural light at the moment with flares and, you know, all that sort of thing. And it's not always about that. And, you know, it's not always the right thing to do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What about on a highly technical film, something like Mulan, obviously, you know, extremely complicated, lots of stunts, massive cast. I mean, a massive project, 200 million budget I just read yesterday. How do you keep a grip on all of the technical stuff for something that big and still keep playful and still keep, you know, the actors and the story front of mind? I think um, 
the most important thing for me on a film like that is pre-production so that I spend time with the director, you know, like we were saying, first of all, going through storytelling points and emotion and character journey uh, throughout the film, the character's journeys. And so I, I have to have that really clearly in my head. And then I start kind of looking at reference of other, for, the, for instance, on Mulan, martial arts films and films that I thought did a really good job, like the films of Zhang Yimou and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and um, The Last Emperor and things that were relative to what we were shooting storytelling-wise and location, you know, to be Chinese film set. In, in a sort of, there was no specific period to when our film was set, but it was obviously ancient times. And then I look at photographs and then I shoot tests. And for a film like Mulan, it was really important to shoot tests because one of the things the director had said to me is that she wanted us to always feel like we were with Mulan throughout the film, like with her character. So we would have big battle sequences and I'd be thinking, well, how do I get the audience to feel like they're with her when there's 40 guys around her, you know, throwing punches and flying through the air? And um so then I kind of would look at technical equipment like cranes and different remote heads that I could put into the scene and be twisting around with her or using different lenses that would focus the audience on her in the centre of the frame and throw everything else out of focus. So things like that, I have these ideas to enhance what we're doing and then I will test them. And on a film like that, I tested for about two weeks and then whenever we had stunt sequences, myself and the director would go along and spend time studying and looking at different angles and planning because on that movie sometimes I had five cameras at once and we had to capture and be really focused on our ideas and where things would land to not, you know, have to go back ten times to get the same sequence. So we had storyboards to a certain extent and we had pre-visualisation, which was made by visual effects, which was, you know, little animations of, of ideas. And, and they would help when we had um, very specific stunt sequences that had to be pulled apart and done in three or four passes. You know, for instance, her jumping onto a horse. Well, that was done with one pass of her on green screen and then one of the horse running that we kept up with the same speed. And then we did a background plate. And then we did an atmosphere plate. So those sort of things have to be worked out beforehand so that um, that you get all the elements that are needed and they're going to fit together. And I remember when I my first big film was um, Baz Luhrmann's Australia and I was working with a gaffer that I'd been working with on many films, Sean Conway. The biggest film I'd done before was Lantana, which was about $12 million. And I remember coming onto Australia and thinking, you know, I can't be overwhelmed by this. I can't be daunted. I know I can do it. And he said to me one day when we proved it, she goes, it's just the same but bigger and you have more time to prep for it. And I went, oh, yeah, you're right. And it is. You're still doing a key light and fill and you're still, instead of lighting someone in the kitchen, you're lighting a 300-foot set. It's the same. It's just bigger. So once I got my head around that, it was a really important point, actually, for me to feel like, oh, yeah, of course. It's not like it's a completely different language. It's just I have to be more prepared and to have other cameras. And now I actually love having a lot of cameras because I think that, you know, you have specific shots that you plan to do, whether you storyboard them or you shot list. And then I have two other cameras up my sleeve 
that can get something really super interesting. And so I sort of try and give the director something that they may not have expected. And that's when I feel like I love having enthusiastic crew there because uh, I remember sometimes on Mulan there'd be a spare camera and Nikki and I'd go, go off into the hills with that super long lens. That We had a 2,800mm lens. We'd send this guy up in, in a golf cart to another mountain and get him to get fabulous stuff. And he got so excited about it. I mean, that's the thing about having enough money and time to be able to play, like you say, in a huge scale. Yeah, that's cool. On those big jobs, I'm gathering you wouldn't be operating one of the cameras. Would you be at the video village and just looking at the cameras and making sure the exposure's all right and all that? Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of DPs love operating all the time, like Roger Deakins, for instance, and Bob Richardson, even on a big film will operate. They don't do a lot of multicam when they're on those films, um, very occasionally. But for me, even when I'm doing a small film now, I don't really operate because I like being next to the director and be able to have a really good relationship with my camera operators and have a good communication with them and a collaboration with them, but so I can stand next to the director and we can discuss things, you know, because if I'm on the end of a crane moving a sandbag out of shot or I could be standing next to the director and talking about the next three shots we're going to do or the next scene or prepping things or looking at the monitors, what other people are doing and say, do you feel that they should change lenses on the next take or do you feel like, um, I'm sorry, it's my dog. It's okay. We love dogs. He's a bit naughty. Um, but, but, you know, to be able to have that, that relationship is, like I was saying, it's my most important relationship on a film and I'd rather have that communication than all the time and be able to be able to, to be with them and, and not be on the end of the camera and away from them. Because you know what it's like, I still operate on commercials and I love it. I really do like it. But when I first come from doing a movie and then I go on to a um, – onto a commercial, I forget that I'm not with the director anymore. And so I do a, a take and then I have to jump off the camera and run over and ask them what they think and then run back. And so I actually prefer to be sitting right next to them. Gotcha. Tell me about one of the other big relationships and that's obviously with the actors and, mm-hmm. you know, you've made some big films now with some big actors and, you know, they're often brilliant, but they bring all sorts of other challenges. And one of those challenges as the cinematographer is often what's right for the story is not the most flattering lighting and shot, yet often Mm. you have these iconic actors and some of them want to look their best as opposed to looking like what is right for the story. So how do you manage that? And, you know, you don't have to name names, but give us a few examples as to how you've managed to navigate that, at times, tricky path. Yeah, you're right. It is a tricky path. And it's something that um, I try and do really early on with the director. And because, for instance, on Lantana, we didn't hardly ever use light. So the actors were in the available light and natural light and I couldn't enhance it. And, you know, if somebody was standing in lights that had bags under their eyes, that was what it was, you know, with a top light that was right for the location or the environment that they were in. And um, Ray and I talked about it very early on and I actually had said to him, we really need to tell the actors that this is how it's going to be, you know, that, that they need to know it very early on so they feel comfortable and, of course, we're there. I think one thing that, in terms of my job is because I'm running around 
lighting and setting up cameras and having control of the environment that they're in, that they feel safe, you know, that they feel like um, not intimidated by anything and not overwhelmed by anything that I'm doing. So, for instance, if I'm outside and I've got a bounce up and I see them sort of squinting and, and the light's really bright, I'll say, do you want me to, to lessen that? And I sort of make it so that I understand that sometimes I have to deal with it or if they're not hitting their marks. When I very first learned, it was like all about actors hitting their marks and then I'd go, oh, no, they didn't hit that one light. And now I know later on in my career that I have to give them the space. And especially on a film like Mulan, what I did and on the last movie I did because I prepped for it is I had lights that were kind of in all running along the whole set, 360 degrees, and a dimmer board that I can do now like on an iPad where I can adjust the light to work with the actors. So I don't have to kind of sit there and there's one line I go, oh, no, I've got to move that and I've got a pan and I've got to put another gel on. And I try and plan it so that I have these lights that are sort of up in the gantry and up in the grid that I can turn on and off and nobody even knows about it. So that's one thing, you know, that I've learned in pre-production. And I would even do it on a small film is I just say, look, we're going to have a light outside every window because we might go into that room or they want to go in that room, we could say, yeah, of course, and try and just give the director and the actors the flexibility. But as far as the glam thing, it's tricky, but I think if it's a film like that, I mean, you know, and on tracks, of course, I had no lighting. I I just were outside in the desert and I think I had a couple of really tiny, teeny lights on a 1K generator when we shot at night around the fire and um, Mia knew about that and she also was going along with that as the character, you know, that she was in these rough and tough environments that were rugged and she was going to look like she was haggard and, and she'd been walking for five days with no water. So it's about just preempting it, I think. That all, all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Your natural charm comes in handy, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> no, that's great. Hey, um, there's so many movies you've made that I want to talk about. We don't have time to talk about them all, but um, Hidden Figures, what a wonderful film. Mm. I, I'm very proud of that movie too. And I got to meet Catherine Johnson, who is the main character in the film, played by Taraji. And she was 98 and sharp as a tack and amazing. Um, but I think it's also that the script really touched me when I read it and I couldn't believe that the story hadn't been told and it was such a special group of women that were part of history and like we'd all seen Apollo 11 and all these space movies those women aren't in those films where they were there like they were there they were part of the space task force they were involved in those missions but they're not ever in the movies that you see so I thought well it was a really great story to tell and I still really emotional when I see that movie because I think the acting and the performances and the directing and everything we did was really in sync in making a very emotional journey for an audience and to show what it was really like for these women and we had to use a lot of like archival footage and some of the film from NASA that we used of some of the space journeys and environments and so one of my jobs on that film technically was to make that seamlessly working together so I shot on film I did a colour grading that made it look like it came more from that period without putting a big stamp on it because again I think that that was a film that sometimes we never moved the camera because it was all about just seeing someone's face and then when we did move the camera it made more of a statement 
and uh, let the performances, you know, lead the way in terms of telling that story. But, yeah, it's a, it's a really great film, I think. Yeah, wonderful. Um, a film I hadn't seen until just a couple of weeks ago in preparing for this was Jane Got a Gun. Oh, right. <laughs> That's a, it's actually a great film. Yeah, it is a good film, isn't it? Yeah. It did get um, the ending got changed by the infamous Harvey Weinstein and the director was going to take his name off and we had to reshoot the ending because it was a sad ending and, and they turned it into a happy ending, which um, I still I hope one day that the real ending gets cut into the movie and, and people actually see the original script because it was better. But anyway... Um, that was also a very strange journey for me because Lynn Ramsey was directing that film originally who made We Need to Talk About Kevin and Ratcatcher. She's a great director, an English director, and she was um, making the film with another cinematographer, Darius Conji, and three days before they were going to shoot, she went home and he went home with her and the producers rang our director, Gavin O'Connor, who I'd never met before, and said, can you take over the movie? And I got a phone call saying, can you read this script? Um, this is on a Monday night. And if you like it, and you can talk to the director for 20 minutes at 10 o'clock at night and come and shoot the movie with no prep, which, as I was saying to you, how important is prep to me is very important. I sort of looked at it and went, well, this is a new challenge and I'm very experienced and I feel experienced enough to take on anything and, and I can just do the best job that I can and maybe it's going to be fantastic. And I spoke to Gavin and we both sort of went, like, what, what, well, let's on the first day just do something really simple. And he said he was going to change the script a bit and he didn't want it to be the same film that Lynn was making. Um, so he was writing the script on the weekends and we were talking. So we got on set on the first day and I began, Sergio Leone, have you seen all the Sergio Leone films? Remember those shots? That would be really good for this. How about we do something like this? And then I'm pulling up on my phone all these ideas. And um, I'm really proud of the fact that we managed to make a visual language in that film that's very consistent and appropriate and for the script, but we did it on the fly. And so by the time we got into the second week of shooting, we were right on a roll and, you know, we, we'd got it all down pat. But the first few days we were making it up as we were going along and we made the decisions, you know, from an intuitive place and we were both on the same page, which thankfully is how that worked. And then in the end, Harvey bought the film and was going to distribute it but said, but, hey, I want to change the ending to a happy ending, as I was saying before. <laughs> but, um, but I still really enjoy the movie and I think the performances are great. And, yeah, it, it was just a very weird experience for me. But I never really know what films are going to bring up as you're going along and, and I say to people you know I will look at a script like if, for instance on tracks and I hadn't worked with John Curran before there's a scene in that movie and the dog's black and um, he's running around at night and we had no lights and I said how are we going to do this John can we change it to day and he said no no it really has to be night's really important and then I was looking at day for night that we didn't have enough money to change the sky for day for night because in visual effects if you shoot day for night without changing the sky, it looks like a terrible old western from the 1950s and it looks wrong. So normally you would, you know, do a sky replacement and we didn't have enough money to do that. So in the end I said, John, can she have a really bright torch, like, you know, one of those old dolphin torches and she's running after the dog but the light is kind of going on and off and this is the only light you see on the dog is these flashes of torchlight going over him at night. And... Um, 
it actually, and then I did a test and it worked and it actually was the right thing for the scene because it enhanced the tension of the moment for her because that's how she would have seen it. She wouldn't have seen the black dog running off in the night, only when the torch was flashing past him. So it worked for the storytelling and it worked for the photography. And the, yeah, so like I was saying, on every movie there's something that comes up and I go, how the hell am I going to do that? Like I had to do a film in the snow 11,000 feet, and the director said to me, it was the mountain between us, and the director said to me, um, I want to be tracking. I want to move the camera all the time. And we were at 11,000 feet, <laughs> only getting up there by a helicopter, and how is it going to track? Because in three feet of snow, you can't walk with a steady cam. You can't lay a rail for a, a dolly. So my grips and I got together and we made these sled dollies that were made of snowboards and we put a remote head on. We made it work. And I love that part of my job, that it's never boring. And and I suppose I've learned not to be afraid of challenges, but to actually embrace it. And it's exciting. And, and that what it's what makes my job really different every time. Yeah, you've got a, a pragmatic approach, but you're able to, you know, keep the creative aspect alive and light and fun and spirit of play. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And I think it's important because if I'm there and I'm falling apart and going, oh, my God, this is never going to work, then we're in trouble. Um, so I just can't be like that. And, you know, when things go wrong and you would know it from being on set, sometimes you're in a situation where um, you planned a whole scene with the sun and then you get there and it's raining and what are you going to do to tell the same story that you were going to tell with that sunshine, you know, and, and how do you do it? And then I have to sort of think of a different way of doing it. And, you know, generally you always find something between you and the director that will tell the same story and be able to think on the fly really quickly because that does happen a lot. It sure does. Hey, The Mountain Between Us, I really enjoyed. I hadn't seen that either until, you know, last week. Love Kate Winslet in pretty well everything she does. Was that an absolute treat working with her? Yeah, she's fantastic. You know, she is a trooper and um, I think she was braver than Idris in the end, you know, because you think oh, Idris Elba's like a really tough, really strong guy. She was the one who was really brave and um, she had to do a scene in the movie where she falls in through the ice into the water. And I remember, again, one of those situations we were in pre-production going, how are we going to do this? Because we were in minus 30 degrees Celsius most days in that location. It was winter in British Columbia, in the Purcell Mountains it was. And then we we're going to take it back to the studio and do it green screen. But then we we're thinking, well, why are we doing one scene green screen? It's, you know, I think it's going to stick out, even though, you know, as real as you can try and make it, being actually in the environment is what would make it, you know, real to an audience, I feel. And so then we were going to build that set in a back lot where it wasn't as cold, you know, where it was in Vancouver and it was only zero degrees and not minus 30. And then in the end, someone, the director asked her and she said, I'll do it for real. Why don't I just do it? People do it. Like we're watching all these films of these crazy Russians who were jumping into ice rivers and during winter with their bikinis on and everything. And it was the same sort of temperature that we were working in and they were crazy, but they were doing it for fun. And she said, I'll do it. And we built a tank and the water was heated to not super hot because then steam would have come off. It was like 10 or 15 degrees warmer than the outside. And um, she said, I'll do it once. And we thought, okay, just going to do it once because she would have snapped frozen when she got out and hit the air, the cold air, being wet. 
So we had all these tents and towels and heaters and and she did it once and then she went with blue lips. She gets out, she's got these blue lips and she said, so how was it? Do you want me to do it again? And the director went, oh, can you? And she goes, yeah, come on, let's do it. And she did it like five times. And we got, you know, five different angles. And the underwater sequence was done on, on stage because we shot that in a tank, the actual underwater shots, because it's much more difficult to shoot that in a situation like that. But her going in and coming out and she just did it. And she was fantastic. And, you know, and that's things like that and having that attitude makes the film real to an audience, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Hey, let's talk about Baz. You worked with him on Australia and you've just uh, yep. worked with him again on the Elvis Presley biopic or whatever you call it. I don't know. Is there a title yet? No, there's no title yet. It's still called the untitled uh, Elvis <laughs> Presley movie. You know, they're still cutting and um, we only finished, I think, about eight weeks ago. I was on that movie for a year and a half because of COVID and, you know, our very famous lead actor, well, not lead actor, well, you know, one of our very famous actors, Tom Hanks, got COVID and um, we had to shut down for four months and went into hiatus with the rest of Australia, you know, where, where we went into lockdown. And then um, we started up again. So it was a long project for me, but it was such fun. I can't talk about it because I'm on an NDA. I'm sure. But I can just tell you that it's amazing and that we had a fantastic guy, Austin Butler, playing Elvis, who was amazing. I think it's going to be really great film, but I can't say more than that. But I can tell you that, you know, I have a long relationship working with Baz and the first time I worked with him was on a commercial, which was a Chanel number no. 5 with Nicole Kidman, and I'd always been a big fan of his work. And, again, he works very differently to other directors. He comes from a theatrical background and he's very enthusiastic and he's full of energy and um you know, on that job, it was just such a blast for me. You know, we I think we shot it in four days and we did like, you know, two weeks worth of work in four days because we only got Nicole for those four days. And it's a five-minute film in the end. And then after that, he asked me to do Australia. And I remember sitting with him and he said, no, no, you haven't done a film as big as this before, but I believe that you can do it. And, and you know, like I said, and that sort of made me feel, you know, really uh great about working with him because it wasn't like I had to prove myself he knew that I could do it already and we had a really great relationship working relationship on Australia and um and then again I did another Chanel number five with him and Giselle in New York and it's always fun it's always fun working with Baz and it's a great collaboration and and he's very involved he's always very involved with every part of the filmmaking you know the technical side of it as well so I remember on Australia there was one scene that we had and it was a dance sequence and there was dialogue between Nicole and Brian Brown and uh, they were talking as they were dancing and he said well I don't really want to just have the camera behind someone's head you know as they're coming around and then they miss half their dialogue let's make a dolly that dances with them and I sort of went oh okay so we got the grips together with the choreographer and we spent a few days, the grips learnt the dance from the choreographer. And from that, they made a dolly that worked with the actors and moved with them and was able to, you know, do the, the whole sequence where we were shooting them in the dance, but we were on a camera move. And it was pretty amazing, actually. And it wasn't like handheld and it wasn't where you're trying to find them. It was in sync with them perfectly. And stuff like that, I, I just think is exciting. And that's very bad to do something like that. Think outside the box. Oh, yeah. He's a quirky character, very talented. 
with a really distinct vision. I remember seeing Strictly Ballroom for the first time. It was one of those cinema moments. I was in New York at the time and I was just absolutely electrified. Yeah, well, you know that he's always going to bring something exciting to it. And, yeah, it's always really great job working with him. And, again, you know, I like working with different directors for different reasons. And that's really great part of my job, you know, like I said, is being able to bring to them what they want me to bring to the movie, you know, to, to help them. I help them tell a story in whatever way they need me to do that. Because I've worked with some directors that come in with storyboards and, you know, like I was saying, very specific visuals of what they want me to achieve. And then I have to go away and work out how to get exactly what that is. So that's another part of my job that, you know, I go, okay, this is the way I'm working on this one. You know, or sometimes we'll be on a movie where everything is decided on set after the actors walk around and and rehearse, then you get together and you work out how you're going to shoot it. And so you're thinking on the fly and you're working on, um, you know, reacting to how they've blocked it through. So it's always different. You're very adaptable. Yes, I have to be. But I do know, I mean, like you were saying, though, in the past I felt that that was not the role that cinematographers took. They came in with their fur coat and they just did what they wanted to do and they didn't really collaborate with the art department or costume or the director sometimes, as you know. You know, they just went, well, this is me and I have a style. And it's the opposite of me because I don't have a style. I do something different on every movie. I don't repeat myself because it's not the same story. Whereas in the old days, I think that's what they did. Some cinematographers were hired because they did a certain thing. You're absolutely right. I went through that as a director years ago where, you know, a lot of the directors I looked up to had this distinct style and I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not a very good director because I don't have this distinct identifiable style. And then, but I was just like, Oh, but I don't know. I like working in different genres and I don't want to just do one thing. And then I'd, and then eventually just worked out, you know what? I'm a performance director. So it depends on what the story is and what the performance is. And the vision is driven by that. So I literally, there was a point where I took off the purely visual commercials off my reel and put the performance ones on there and went, you know what? I'm a performance director. And it was a good call because it's meant I've been kind of, you know, employed and, busy for 30 plus years because my visual look didn't just kind of become yesterday's visual look and have a new visual kit on the block because performance directors, if you're any good, are always in demand, theoretically. No, that's correct. And and it's it's storytelling as we're going back to storytelling, isn't it? What's right for that project and what's right for that dialogue or, you know, that performance is what we're very modern, I think. We must be. <laughs> we're the new generation <laughs> that changed that. Survivors. Yes. <laughs> um, talk, talking the truth, we'll, I'm about to wrap up, but uh, another film I, I hadn't actually heard anything about and I hadn't seen but Truth with Robert Redford and Kate Blanchett. I mean, mm. holy shit, what a cast. Yeah. How was that? I know, a great cast. I mean, I have to say it was a privilege to work with those actors. I think, you know, in my career I've probably worked with about 10 actors that when they stand up in front of the camera, you know, you get shivers up your spine and those two were two of them. Again, that was a movie where it was a first-time director and I remember sitting down with him and the films that we watched that we thought were um, good reference were like The Social Network and All the President's Men. And one thing I said 
when we were talking about covering, like, say, for instance, there's this big scene where she's doing her, it's not a deposition inquiry, and there's people interviewing her and it's a really important part of the movie. And I remember saying to Jamie, the director, we shouldn't move the camera at all. Like, I don't like those scenes where the camera moves for the sake of it because I think the audience is getting bored because people are just sitting at a table talking. And I find it really distracting. It's that back of the head thing, you know. Why does anyone want to look at the back of someone's head past, you know, they they want to see what the actor's saying? So we hardly ever moved the camera. And then when we did, there was a certain part of the dialogue and all we did was just tighten up on her face. And it ends up being kind of imperceptible, but it adds to the drama. So that film I didn't want to put too much of a visual stamp on it. It it wanted to look realistic, but... um, you know, look after the actors, of course, on that one because we had Robert and Kate and I didn't want it to look like a documentary. Yeah. So when we talked about it, it was, you know, it, it's got to be real but it shouldn't be like a documentary. It should be like a film like like those two movies we mentioned, like All the President's Men, was very lit, you know, it was very controlled photographically and we tried to do that in a modern sense without being flashy. I, I'm amazed that not many people saw that movie and, it was because it was pretty much quashed by, I think it was CBS, wasn't it? The television the, the station yeah. that it was involved in, in what happened and it fired them. So by the time we got to release the film, they were involved with, like, I can't remember who it was, but it was pretty much not put out into the world because it was still pretty critical of some people that were still in power at that TV station. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very, very powerful. Nearly going to wrap up here. I could chat with you all day, but I'll exercise great discipline and not, you know, take up your whole (laughs) Friday night. Um, Who are the DPs that inspire you and that you, you know, have looked up to? I think, you know, we were talking about having mentors. I grew up working underneath two very innovative and special DPs in my life was um, Ray Argyll and Andrew DeGroote. And I thought they were both amazing cinematographers who had a big influence on me and the way I work, And but were also incredibly generous with information and, and teaching me the craft of how they approach their craft. And then I think, you know, a lot of the Australian DPs that I grew up with, like Russell Boyd and John Seal and Dean Semler and Andrew Lesney, who was a friend of mine as well, who were guys that I could ring up. You know, when I was first learning to shoot, I could ring Dean Semler and say, hey, you know when you did that? And Peter James too. You know, you know when you did, Peter James, I remember calling him and saying, you know when you did that day for night in black robe and you had these special filters? And they would always tell me what they'd done or help me out or have an idea and... So those relationships were important to me. But then also there were people like Robbie Mueller and um, Vittorio Storaro, a very huge variety of um, other cinematographers. So a lot of them are European, actually. And because I remember the first time when I was doing my cinema studies at high school and we had a teacher, Brian Simpson, who introduced me to foreign language film and experimental film, like the early David Lynch, like A Razorhead and things like that. And so then I'd look at how people saw the world in a different way and how films don't have to all look the same. And now it's Roger Deakins, who always amazes me when he does something in a movie that I've never seen before, you know, like in 1917. 
you know, not so much the single shot, but, you know, those night scenes where the flares are going over the top and how he orchestrated that. It was brilliant, you know. So yeah. it, I'm, I'm always being influenced and, and impressed by my fellow cinematographers. <laughs> but those guys, Andrew de Groot and, and Ray Argel, were the biggest influences on my career. Cool. What's up next? Um, well, I'm feeling like uh, I just got back to the United States, which is kind of a bit weird, but fine. I really want to finish up. I know we'll probably have some additional photography for Elvis, so I want to finish up that in hopefully in the next few months So to make myself available for that. Then I don't know because I'm sort of holding off until that's finished doing commercials. I haven't started working here yet till I get my second vaccination, which is next week, and then I'll go back to shooting commercials because it is still pretty COVID crazy here, getting better, but I've been in a, you know, in Australia where we're all pretty protected for a long time, so I'm used to that. And so once I do that, I'll get back to work and do some commercials that will take me through. And then I don't know what movie I'm going to do next, but a few things in the pipeline that are possibilities and, and something different and maybe some TV because there's some amazing television being made and I've never done a TV series. So that's something I'm interested in. Wow. Well, very, very exciting and lovely to chat with you today. <laughs> My pleasure, Lee. Lovely to chat with you and catch up after such a long time and, um, you know, bringing back these memories of Molly Meldrum. My God. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was, one of, it was one of those very surreal um, shoot days, wasn't yeah. it? It was. Uh, it was, it was uh, very very curious. Well, have a great day and hopefully we'll get to shoot again one of these days. Yes, I would love to. It would be great. All right. Well, have a great day and uh, see you soon. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Mandy. I know I certainly did. The process of filmmaking can get pretty hectic at times. It's usually in an expensive medium and the pressure's always on. I can't think of anyone I'd rather be in the trenches with than Mandy Walker. For more about Mandy, head to her website, mandywalkerdp.com, or go to IMDB, type her name in, and get the full list of credits. Thanks for the great ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts for those that have done so. Don't hesitate to head over there and tell others what you like about the podcast. Give it a rating. You know the drill. Plenty more stellar guests coming up, but in the meantime lived large the blank canvas is produced by lee rogers and me rin mcdonald with audio support by jason murphy at gas inc and music by rodrigo bustos this has been a millevich production